When I first became a transplant patient, someone pointed out that one of the hardest things was going to be dealing with the deaths of other transplant patients. The truth is that we don't always live as long as the regular population, especially those of us who were transplanted at younger ages. Two weeks ago, my friend Allie died in her sleep. She was a 24-year-old woman with a heart transplant and so much more. She was strong. She helped me through my early days as a baby transplant patient. She wrote a book by age 23 about overcoming her struggles throughout her life and advocated so much for organ donation. She was intelligent, hilarious, and kind. Rest in peace, Allie Neff. And as you know, I see life and death around me often. It's a, it's a regular part of my job. Some people are just living to die. Others are dying to live. I see a reckless 30-something-year-old woman purposefully overdosing on cocaine just to see what it feels like just this one time. Next to her, there's a patient, a former marathon runner, who has beat cancer twice, and he can't breathe that well right now. I'm about to tell him that the cancer is back for a third time in his lungs. I'm not here to judge who deserves to live and who doesn't. Never, ever. I'm not here to question why some terrible things happen to good people or vice versa. Life is life. Some of us are given long, beautiful ones. Some of us are given short, awful ones. Sometimes life is long and burdensome or even troubling. Who knows? One thing is for sure. Life is what you make of it. Life is how you react to everything that happens to you. Life is a special gift if you want it to be. In my opinion, it's extraordinary. We do our best to live a dignified life and leave behind what we can, if we can. It's so simple, yet so complex. Aline, that was, um, when I read this, this was so sobering for me. And, you know, from the start from here, when I came across your story, I was very inspired by it. And I was very inspired by the way you told it and how, um, fearless you seemed when you talked about your story and I think you've inspired a lot of people through your social media and through your blog and I thought you know at any point in time you know it'd be great to hear your story but especially now uh, given this pandemic and everything that's going on I thought you know we really need to hear your story and um, that's why I wanted to have you on so thank you so much for joining me of course thank you for having me Definitely. Um, so for those that don't know about your story, I thought maybe you could give us a background or an introduction on about yourself and what you've been through. Sure. Um, so quick, quick um, introduction. So my name is Aline Gregosian. I'm currently finishing up an emergency medicine residency. Um, I'll be starting a critical care fellowship in just a couple of months in New York, actually. But last year I went through um, some crazy changes in my life, actually. Um, I was 30 years old last year in the middle of my last year of residency in emergency medicine. So this was 2018, December. Um, and I started feeling very sick, very suddenly, uh, over a period of just a few weeks, I went from having just a cold and congestion to suddenly getting worse with the cough and shortness of breath. And, um, suddenly in the middle of December of 2018, I basically died. I went to the hospital um, because I was getting so short of breath in the matter of 24 hours that um, I was admitted for the shortness of breath. When I was hospitalized that particular night, um, I ended up basically going into cardiogenic shock. 
I was put on life support and, um, I woke up just a couple of days later intubated and I was told that I had gone into acutely decompensated heart failure and my whole body was shutting down. Um, and that basically I needed a heart transplant. Now, the cause of all of this was due to a genetic defect that I had. And the theory was that I had this genetic defect that I had had, you know, since I was born that I probably just never knew about, but it had been turned on by a virus. So I had some sort of viral myocarditis that had worsened it. Um, and, you know, just a week before all this, just a couple of weeks before all this, I was a completely normal, healthy 30 year old. So this all happened to me very, very suddenly. So imagine going from being a completely normal 30-year-old who, you know, had everything to live for to being told that, you know, you're dying and you need a heart transplant. Not only was I, was I told that I needed a heart transplant, but I was put at the top of the list and I needed it within days. Um, this was all in Philadelphia when I, where I was a resident. I was transferred to the University of Pennsylvania. I was on the list for about 11 days. Uh, I got the heart in 11 days. And, um, nine days after that, I was discharged with a heart transplant and, um, I went back to residency about five months after, and, uh, now I'm finishing up my final year of residency and then I'll be starting the critical care fellowship. A lot of things happened in between all this, but I think I really, and, and you know, my story has been told a few times over and over again, but right now it's, it's most important for me to retell my story because of this pandemic, because I see a lot of young people my age saying things like, oh, this could never happen to me. You know, I should, I'm not going to take this seriously. I'm young, I'm healthy. And when I hear that, it's almost like, to me, I keep telling people like, you know, I was young and healthy too. I also thought I was invincible. And sometimes things just happen to you and you can't always, um, you know, of course, we always hope for the best, but you should always be expecting the worst at times, especially in times like this, because you never know what's going to happen to you. I mean, first of all, I just have to say, like, <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine or even come close to imagining what you've been through or, you know, how hard that must have been to get through all of that and there's no doubt that it's made you a stronger person. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're simplifying a lot of this <laughs> and, um, playing it down. And, uh, I think, you know, it's just, I think this is something we need to hear. And I think given this pandemic, there is this attitude amongst a lot of us, you know, there is, we are at lower risk given, you know, younger age groups, mm -hmm. but there is this sobering realization. A lot of times when I'm in the hospital or when I have, you know, when our, my co-residents are in the hospital and we're seeing people on, you know, intubated um, and very critically ill and seeing patients dying, it's a reminder that, you know, this could, you know, this could be me, this could be my friend, this could be anybody. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think for people in healthcare, I think we maybe are a little bit starting to think, you know, that could be us. Mm -hmm. But in general, for somebody young and healthy and not really, you know, with no, at the time there was no pandemic going around and you were living and leading a normal life at the time when you found all of this out. I mean, what, 
what was going through your mind when you first encountered all of this? Like, was it just complete, utter shock? What, like, what were you going through when you were given this diagnosis? I, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what were you thinking? And the more I look back, I think everything happened to me so suddenly that like, I don't think I had time to process how crazy the situation was until afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people say like, you were so strong through it. How did you do it? And I said, you know, you don't know how strong you are until you're faced with a situation like this until, you know, stuff is thrown at you like this. Um, it was, it all happened so suddenly that I don't think I, I necessarily processed it at the time. Uh, I think it, it when it, I remember thinking the following, I remember thinking, okay, this is happening to me. Um, I have heart failure. I'm in dilate, you know, I have dilate cardiomyopathy. I'm in like heart failure. I have like multiple organ damage. I think my, like my LFTs were super elevated. I was, you know, I had kidney failure. I remember thinking like the only thing that I can do for this is get a heart transplant and then get out of here and make my life go back to as normal as possible. So I was thinking in like baby steps and I was almost thinking like, I remember the attending that was rounding on me was thinking, it was telling me, she's like, you're thinking just like an ER doctor. Like you're, you're thinking like, like this is what I need to get out of here. And so I remember my mindset at the time was just, I'll think about the process of it later. Like I'll think about processing it later, but right now I need to get out of here. And the way to get better and to get out of here is to get this transplant. So I wasn't very like upset about it. Um, I remember, I mean, I was upset about it, but I remember, I remember understanding that anger and sadness weren't going to necessarily better the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't going to, it none of that was going to make the situation go away. All of that was still going to, you know, I'm still needed a heart transplant no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew at the end of the day, I was going to do something about with all, with all of this. I remember saying to myself, like, if I stayed alive, you know, once I got out of here, if, if I stayed alive for the next couple months, I was going to do some kind of good with all of this. And, and with that mindset, I was able to, you know, I did a few things with it eventually, but um, that was kind of my mindset going into it, but it was really scary, obviously. So was there any room for fear during all there, of this? There was, um, there was, I was really scared, but I remember because there were so many people around me that were so much more scared than I was, or at least like, I remember, you know, my parents aren't in medicine and they live in Los Angeles. So a lot of my family members had to fly in. And so I kind of had to be there. Um, I had to kind of continuously like tell them that I was going to be okay. So I think like I was everybody's like support system for myself, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, it does make sense. (laughs) You had to show that you were being strong so that they, they were, they were comforted because you felt maybe they'd be comforted by that. Right. And like, in some ways, like some people like look back right now and they're like, you know, I'm really sorry for, you know, putting that on you. And I was like, no, I think it actually helps you. Some people say like the way that you, the things that you say to yourself kind of make you feel better at times. And I think me constantly saying like, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Actually helped me. Um, but I do remember like 
I remember um, I had to constantly tell my aunts on the phone. Everybody was always crying around me. Like so many people were always crying around me. Every, everything was so depressing around me. And I remember I had to be the one who was constantly telling people that it was going to be okay. So it was just very interesting. I, I can't even imagine. And that <laughs> speaks to your character. It just shows, you know, your strength and your resilience. <laughs> it was interesting. I can tell you that. What did you... What were you thinking in terms of when when I get out of here? And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but like, were you at this point kind of like accepting that there's a chance that you had to come to term with death? death? Because a lot of us don't even think about, you know, the possibility of dying, right? And when you're right. faced with this kind of a situation, you have to really... I imagine you'd have to really, you know, consider that that's a, a possibility. Absolutely. I had to come to terms with my own death many times. Um, I think the first time was actually the first time that I, um, that, that first night when everything happened to me, when I got intubated, I remember like everybody asked me like, did you see a light when that happened to you? Like what happened when you almost died that night when your, you know, heart rate went down when you braided down and you went into shock and I didn't necessarily see a light, but I remember um, in my head, like I, I almost like came to terms with my own death and it was all very peaceful in my head. I don't remember anything that happened to me like physically. I don't remember. I mean, it's interesting what the human mind does, right? Like you, you actually like don't remember any of those weird, bad things that happened to you. But um, in my mind, I remember being very like at peace with my own death. Now, because I had gone through that, like, I remember when I woke up uh, after that, um, when I was intubated and I woke up and they told me that I needed, you know, when I was in heart failure and all of that, I remember thinking like, wow, like I didn't die. This is amazing. Like I'm living on borrowed time. Like, like it, I was already excited that like I had beat death this one time. Wow. Um, so I think I had that mindset to begin with. And then, um, there were a couple times, like I kept going into VTAC. Uh, I, I was on, I was on, um, Milrinone and, you know, once you're on Milrinone for a while, you, you go into VTAC. As, so I, I kept going into VTAC and, um, you know, there were a few times where they would come in and we'd have to talk about what was going to happen to me. <laughs> like, do you want compressions done? You know, that was kind of crazy to, think about as a 30 year old, of course I want that done. But also in my head, I, you know, wanted to think about, I mean, how long, how many minutes of that do I really want done? I mean, do I want to be like, do I want a trach? Do I want a peg? You know, I actually had to think about all of that too. I never thought in my life that I would have to, you know, write out what I wanted at 30 years old, but I did have to do that at, at some point, at least think about it. Um, and so it was, it was very scary. It was, it was sobering. And it, luckily I have a very like dark sense of humor. So that kind of helped me out. But <laughs> I remember my, my, and, and you know, I'm an emergency room resident going into critical care. So, you know, that was also helpful, but yeah. my, um, you know, it was, it was a lot, mm -hmm. it, it was, it was very crazy. It was like surreal and to be surrounded by family during all this, especially family who's not in medicine and, you know, trying to explain to them that like, yeah, they're telling me that, you know, every time I go into VTAC, there is like this much percent chance of my heart stopping. So mm. 
that, that's what that means, Dad. So, so. I want to I want to get back to this actually the part about mm-hmm. being in medicine and understanding everything that's going on because that yeah. also may be uh, a little bit scarier when you understand like the risks yeah. and the real like implications of things because you know you you understand it all. Sometimes yeah. having a little ignorance is a bliss. Absolutely. Uh, but you went. I just want to go back to something you were just saying earlier and it was more about this coming to terms with death and the feeling of you know experiencing that and what i'm most curious about is i am like what what did you feel when you were when you were coming when you were like having those yeah like what were you feeling like like what were what were like what were you telling yourself what were you like oh, what gave you that peace and that comfort? Like even if it's know. even I if it's just, esoteric or not esoteric, like I'm really curious to know what that was like. I remember the, I remember this. I remember um getting really, really sweaty. Like this was my physical feeling. So I felt very, very sweaty. And I remember I looked at my monitor and my heart rate, which initially when I went to the emergency room was like in the one thirties, one forties, my heart rate had gone down to like 30. And I remember I like squinted to look at it because I was like, is that, is that 30 on the monitor? And my boyfriend, who's an orthopedic surgeon, he was sitting next to me. Like he came to visit. Mm-hmm. So he got up because I remember I looked at him and I said, Hey, I don't feel good. And he got up and and I think by the time he got up, the nurses had already like they were running into the room. And then I just remember a lot of like words being said around me, but it was all in slow motion. So so I clearly remember a lot of things going on around me, but I don't remember what was being said. It was just kind of like blah, 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 like a lot of like (laughs) stuff being said and a lot of things being shuffled around. But me like in my head, I was kind of like, okay, this is the end of my life. It's okay. Aline, it's okay. Like, and you know, but I had faith in the system. I remember thinking like, everything's going to be okay. And if it's not, then that's okay too. Like, I remember thinking those things. Um, but, but like, personally, I don't remember much else. Now the people who were there because it was all my friends taking care of me. Um, mind you, I was at the hospital that I was a resident at. So, um, like it was my friend who intubated me. It was my colleague who like was trying to get ABG on me a colleague who tried to put a line in me and stuff. So the last thing I said to the ICU resident who was on call that night was I looked at her and I said, apparently this is all like secondhand, but I looked at her and I said something like, you know, please don't let me die tonight. And until this day, and she she was only able to tell me this like months later, but she always says, she says, I still can't do like rapid responses and codes because of that. Like, it's oh. crazy. Yeah. She's like, she just says, she's like, that was the craziest thing I'd ever had to do. Um, and so, and like that, and also I, every time I hear about, you know, people having to intubate their colleagues for COVID, I remember I keep thinking about my own friends having to like, you know, resuscitate me. So I can only imagine how crazy that must feel. Unbelievable. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine like for yeah. you, your part and for your colleagues. Part, part, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, just that's unbelievable. And there's so many parts of your story that I find so inspiring. Like the fact that you're even able to talk about this right now in itself is very inspiring. And um, so I just I just have to commend you 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just telling my story. I don't, I, people always tell me, they're like, you're so inspiring. Like I get stopped sometimes by people or like, they'll be like, are you the transplant girl? And I'm just like, yeah, but like, I didn't do anything. I just got to transplant. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you're very, you're very humble, but you're incredibly humble, but you, you, you are, you know, like this does, this does impact people and it does inspire a lot of people. Uh, to see your strength, especially, I think for me, even just to see the way you like talked about it in your stories and in your blog posts um, and in your Instagram posts, I mean, it really is sobering. I mean, I think we all need a dose of that and to realize how fragile life really is mm -hmm. and how much we really have to appreciate it and how much we really have to not take it for granted, especially in these times. Uh, with COVID, I think a lot of us in medicine right now that are seeing our patients crash and die it's scary you know i yeah. was i asked to get my I, I was getting my life insurance stuff together the other day because i'm like hey you know if this this thing ends up you know being the it for me i want to be prepared and you know make sure my family's all set right um because you know like now we have to think about it and like even those that thinking about it was like you know, like this is real. This is like, this is, yeah. and, and those risks have always been there, but it takes a pandemic or for it to be right in our face for us to really, right, right, to really realize it. And what do you think, what do you think people are missing right now? What don't they know that you know? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think, I think it's still not getting to people that, you know, this kind of thing could happen to anybody. I think, I think people are saying it. Like, I think, I think, I think people are saying like, yeah, no, I understand it could happen to me, but, but I don't think people understand, people are really understanding how close this is to them. Um, you know, it was interesting. I, I was reading this article about how like people who were depressed in the past are now feeling less depressed because they feel like, right now because everybody is also quarantined um they're not feeling as alone because they're not the only ones having to go through like isolation by themselves if that makes sense and like when i after i went through my transplant um not that i was depressed but after i went through my transplant i had to be in like quarantine so like this all for me like being in like quarantine is completely normal because i wasn't allowed to travel for the longest time i was in quarantine for about three months after my transplant um mm -hmm. i still like haven't i think i went to like one basketball game last year and that was like in december like you mm -hmm. know i have a lot of restrictions myself i have to wear a mask everywhere like yeah. none of this was new for me yeah and um, that was from all so, from being on all the immunosuppressants exactly yeah. yeah so so ever since last year like a lot of this has been normal for me and so like it's just interesting for me seeing people complain about things like, oh, this mask is hurting me. And I remember like last year, like I would think the same things. I'd be like, oh, like this mask is hurting me. And then people would be like, oh, but aren't you happy of a second chance at life? Like, how could you complain about that? So I'd always feel bad, like complaining about such, you know, stupid things like this mask is hurting my ear. But then now I feel like, oh, people kind of understand what I went through. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, so there's like little things like that, that I feel like, like I never wanted to complain about last year, but at least I feel like people are kind of understanding a little bit more than they did. But I still don't understand. I still don't think that people could understand that something crazy, like, like, you know, getting intubated and, you know, getting coded could actually still happen to them. I, I mean, maybe not getting coded, but getting 
critically ill, you know, could happen to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very hard thing to wrap your head around until it's like, you know, right there in your face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always tell people, I'm like, remember, like I was, I was a completely normal, like jogging. Like I went out with my friend just five days before, like, you know, I, I crashed. Like I, I had a completely normal life. So imagine like today you're living your normal life and in five days you're, you know, you're on life support and that's how quickly things are done. Like, and then, um, I, I think I was watching this, like Aziz Ansari, I think it was his last like special, but it was like, he said this one thing that like, I think really, um, I don't know how people feel about him, but he said this one, like, awesome quote but he basically said like I saw my life and I saw everything be taken away from me like like this and he just like snapped and and he said like so I know what that feels like and people don't sometimes don't understand how quickly things could be taken away and um and you know and if you get a glimpse of it kind of like how I did like it changes your whole viewpoint on life and I don't want anybody to ever have to actually get a glimpse of it so just knowing that you know you possibly are at risk for this. Um, I hope that people understand that like this should be taken a little more seriously. Right. Well, what do, you, what do you, do you, do you think people like, what can people do to have a little bit more sobering idea of what's really at stake, but without the anxiety and the fear right, that comes right. along with it, you know, because yeah, there is a lot there, you know, this is it's scary for everybody. Um, and, you know, and especially working in healthcare, we're all at much higher risk, but what, what in terms, like, how do you ground yourself to face something like this or face, you know, face your death without actually being so worried? Because I, I was on call last night. Mm -hmm. I had maybe 15 calls of purely anxiety. Wow. Um, and I really had to be a therapist and counsel patients on how to, and, you know, help them, you know, calm themselves down a little bit. And, right, right. you know, then I also had to differentiate between like, well, like if obviously if this was something serious versus not, but a lot of it was anxiety and people are more anxious than ever. Yeah. I think um, knowing that if you're taking all the proper precautions that, you know, you're supposed to take and, and not, um, and not taking them like loosely, like just taking the precautions that you're supposed to, right? Like staying home as much as possible, you know, wearing a mask if you're supposed to, if you're a healthcare worker, especially, you know, taking as most of the precautions as possible. Um, if you're sick, you know, stay home. Um, I mean, if you're not sick, you should also be staying home. But if you're sick, you should definitely not be going to work. Um, doing everything that you're supposed to be doing. And just knowing that you're doing as much as you can to help. Um, that's the best that you can do. And, um, as long as you're not going like overboard and as long as you're not thinking, you know, as long as you're not thinking that you're better than this virus, you know, as long as you're not thinking that you can, no matter what, like, you know, this is never going to get you and you're always taking the pro proper precautions. I think those are the two main things. I, I totally agree with you. There, there shouldn't be like too much anxiety about this, but I do, I do think that there are still some people out there that like, 
aren't not taking this seriously at all. And those are the people that I'm talking about. But I yeah. think if you're taking the proper precautions and, and taking it as seriously as possible, then that's that's like the perfect balance, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I agree with you that there are people who are like overly anxious. Um, and but but that's not the that's that's also like not the proper way to be dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, uh, I have, I have so many questions for you, but I wanted to, before we like go way back, like into some other things, I still wanted to touch on this one subject and it was, um, kind of like when we were talking about being intubated and extubated or, or, you know, getting a trach, um, you know, like being in medicine and knowing all of the risks involved with what you were going through, what, like, how did that play into your entire experience? Um, are you talking about like going back to work now or? No, no. Like when you were actually in the hospital. Oh, and, okay. And, you know, you were in the ICU and you were like, you know, when you, cause like when you were looking at the monitors, you knew exactly what was going on. You knew what the, yeah. you were, what the so, attendings were yeah, talking about. Yeah, what they were talking about. Yeah. Like you knew what the real stakes were. You knew that, you knew everything basically. So there are two types of people. I think for me, it helped me. I think I'm a very direct person. I'm a very, um, like you like to intellectualize things. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah. And, and I'm a very, like I had just matched into ICU like right, right before this all happened to me. So like, I'm a very like realist. I'm, I'm a, I'm a realist. I'm a very like realistic type of person. So I wanted to know exactly like what my options were like, like what was going on with me directly. Like I didn't want the BS. I don't want to be told like, Oh, you know, you might have a chance with your heart. You know, no, I didn't care. Like, like yeah. I knew that my cardiac index was 1.1 and my heart, my ejection fraction was 5%. And wow. like all four oh chambers God. were dilated like that, like that, that means transplant, right? right? Like I knew that meant transplant from the yeah. beginning. So there's no point in telling me like, Oh, you're a good candidate for like, you know, getting an impella. No, you're, I'm not like, I know I'm not. So like, I don't, I didn't want to be so, so in my opinion, I was the kind of person that, that liked knowing how dire my situation was. Yeah. I don't think everybody's like that. Like I do think ignorance is bliss in some, for some people. Um, uh, I, like one of my transplant friends, um, he was telling me his story. Like he had, he's my age as well. And he had a aortic dissection and then required, you know, repair for that and then required a transplant. And then he had like a tamponade. So he's like telling me all this. Mm -hmm. And then in my head, I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> that is crazy. Like I'm like asking him a whole bunch of questions, but he's just like, wait, what do you mean? Like, is that crazy? Like, is that really, I was like, yes, that's like the craziest thing ever. Like this is <laughs> like, <laughs> like, those three things are like, if for, like for emergency medicine, having like an aortic dissection and a tamponade, oh my God, like how did you go through that? <laughs> but you know, for, <laughs> for like someone, I, I think, I think in, for me, it helped. For some people, like, you know, they don't need to know. I mean, some people would just rather not know how dire their situation is. And they just rather have, like, someone, you know, you know, make all the, the decisions. And, like, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but for me, I, I liked it. Uh, and there were some days that I didn't want to know. Um, I remember, like, the nurses or the residents, the nurses would come in every morning. And they'd ask me, like, do you want to know your labs? Or the residents would come in and they'd be like, do you want to see your echo for the day? And sometimes I just didn't care. Like I'd say, like, is it really going to change anything? Like, let me just sleep today, you know. Yeah. Um, but overall, um, it helped. I didn't mind being told that I was going to die. Like, basically, if, if that's the, that's the best way 
that's what I like to be told. I, I like to be told that like, Hey, this is how crazy your situation is. And you're, you're, you're basically dying and you need to get that transplant as quickly as possible. But yeah. I know that that's not for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's what I'm, what I'm so I'm like, like how long did it take you to get to that point where you realized like, this is like potentially because like it, it happens so fast, you know, like right, from what you're telling right. me. Like, how long did it take you to get to that point where you're like, okay, potentially, I could die from this? You know, um, so when I first got transferred, because I got transferred to another hospital at first, and then we got transferred to Penn eventually, um, just because I wanted a second opinion, and it wasn't until like maybe, so I got told that I needed advanced heart failure like therapies so that's why I got transferred initially and it wasn't until like maybe three or four days after that when I started going into VTAC and it was this one particular night it was the night when when my numbers were starting to get worse and and it was the night when my VTAC started then and that's the night that I stopped sleeping very well and that's the night that I was like, wow, this could actually kill me. And I have texts. Like, I, I'm glad I kept a lot. Like, I, I don't have that many pictures, but I, I have, like, some screenshots and some texts. But I was texting, like, one of my good girlfriends from back home. And, you know, I would talk to her about a lot of these things. And and I think that's the night that I realized, like, wow, this is actually a lot more serious than I thought it was. And I always thought – I always knew it was pretty serious. But I was – I think it took me like maybe about three or four days to come to terms with how serious it was. But again, you're right. Like it happened so fast that there wasn't like a specific timeline of like this happened. Like, like it was, it was very fast for me to exactly pinpoint like a specific date. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, and what do you like, I guess after all of this and mm -hmm. going through it, how do you, how do you think like all of this changed your life or like what was your outlook on life after going through all this? Like how did it change? You know, it's funny because um, everybody always says like, like you're always the type of person <laughs> who, who like would never take a day for advantage. Like, like you always like live your life to the fullest, like as cliche as that sounds, like I was never the type of person who like took anything for granted. So like, um, I remember like, like people would like my, my closest friends who know me very well. They're like, like, like I remember when I was, when I was in the hospital when I was talking to my closest like friends about all this, I remember like thinking like, you know what, like if I even were to die, like now, like I would actually die happy. And that like saying that to my friends that like for them, I think, I think they knew they were like, don't say things like that, that don't say things like that. But at the end of the day, like they were like, of course you would say that. Like, this is like the last thing that could ever happen to you. That's going to like, it, it's, this isn't something that would happen to you that like change your outlook on anything. Yeah. Um, but it did change their outlook. Like so many of my friends ended up like, you know, changing a lot of the things that they were doing. Like I remember a couple of them like took trips right after and like did these things that they had never done in their lives. <laughs> and because it's so like, sobering. It's so, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, even reading your, reading your posts, it's so sobering because, because we take so much for granted. We take, we take so much for granted and we worry about things that are 
almost just just stupid. so stupid yeah you know yeah, and, yeah. and we try and you know like how much time do we spend worrying about things that are absolutely just pointless yeah you know? yeah i remember my, two of my girlfriends actually they they specifically went and like did things right after and um and they were like you know it's because of you like we finally did this because of you and you know you're always the one telling us um but but overall like I, it changed um I think, I think it helped, it helped a lot of us, not just me kind of slow down. Um, I think, I think it, it made a lot of us view things, you know, in a different light. Um, when I went back to work, like I really wanted to go back to work more than anything, which was like, people were like, you still want to go back to work? Like what? I was like, yeah, more than ever. Like now I really like, I loved my job before, but like after all this, I was like, now, now I like totally know what my patients are going through. Of course I want to go back to work. And, um, so, so I kind of like had this whole new viewpoint on like emergency and critical care medicine. So it changed, it changed not only my perspective on life and living, but a lot of my closest friends and then also changed my, how much like I really like gave into my job. And so it was, it was different. Yeah. What specifically changed, like what things specifically changed in your life? Um, so one, so I could say specifically one example was, um, going back to work. So, so that's, a, that I, I, I'm only going to say that one cause it's like took up so much of my life, but going back to work, um, was a major, major part of it. Um, when I went back to work, I was able to not only, not only uh, empathize, like, and when I say empathize, like, like literally I could feel what my patients were going through more with my patients. Um, but I saw like a, a different side of healthcare that I had never seen before when I was a patient. Mm. Um, and so I was able to like use those skills as a patient now that like I'm a resident doctor. Um, and so, so I was able to, I mean, even the little things like, like, I can't even, I can't even, like little things like knowing like the, how annoying it is to get certain medications, certain times of the day at certain pharmacies. Um, um, even little things like taking medications throughout the day. I mean, I used to be like, why is it so difficult for patients to take medications every day? My God, let me tell you how difficult it is. I take medications now it's three times a day, but it used to be four times a day. And you would think like, it's, I was like, you know, I'm a doctor. I should, it should be easy for me, but I have like multiple alarms set throughout the day to remind me to like take meds, to do physical therapy, to like do this, to do that. And I still forget. So, you know, so I was able to like empathize with little things, um, with my own patients. And then I was also able to empathize a lot with like the heart failure patients, um, any of the transplant patients, any, any of, um, the patients that were, that had been through what I had been through, any of the critically ill patients, especially critically ill, like young patients. Um, so, so that was something interesting as well. Not only that, but I was able to take my experiences and I started volunteering with Donate Life and Gift of Life. I started volunteering with American Heart Association. So, you know, little things like that I tweaked. And so it was very interesting and fun. And it's been fun so far. Yeah. Yeah, it's very sobering to um, to go in as a patient. I mean, yeah. I've been a patient of few, maybe not for a while, but maybe like I still remember those times that I were, was a patient in high school with like broken bones or whatever. Yeah. Um that you know i really care i really it really mattered like the bedside manner of yeah. the people that came in and talked to you yeah um and 
I've something I've that's always stuck with me. And even when I've gone to the doctor, I've, I've I you know remember which um, interactions were really good and which ones weren't. And right, and that always sticks with me. And I always try to have that good bedside manner with all my patients because I know, you know, like you know, that's that's the difference between what makes a good doctor and a bad doctor, right? In my right. opinion. You know, you can have all the knowledge in the world. You can know all the whatever you want. If you don't have that good bedside manner, if you can't empathize with a patient, it doesn't yeah. mean anything. I think one of my patients told me the best thing like recently, but he said it was like a husband and a wife and the husband was the patient and the wife said something like, you know, it seems like you've been a patient before or something. <laughs> like she said something along the lines of like, like, you really know what you're talking about. And I think it's because you've been in his shoes before. And I was like, yeah. And, and I really liked the way that she said that. So wow. it was really nice. Wow, yeah. they could even, like, see it. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah, really cool. Yeah, yeah, it was super cool. So what I'm hearing is that there are a lot of positives that came from Absolutely. No, I never, I you know, I was telling, so I'm back, I'm working again in the hospital. Uh, I went back, but I'm doing, like, an inpatient rotation, just so I'm not, um, I'm not, like, with ER patients as much right now because of COVID. But I was telling my my attending about everything that happened to me because he didn't know the story and um and and he was just like in awe and at the end he was like wow like so you must be like really upset like about everything that happened to you and I said you know I never really got upset like I I don't think I mean I have been upset I shouldn't say there's I'm not upset of course it's upsetting to like not be able to say I can go back to November 2018. Of course it's upsetting that like, you know, I'm not going to live as long as like anybody else who's my age right now. But, and, and like, I can't like, you know, do normal things like a normal 32 year old can, or, I mean, I can do most things, but there's some limitations obviously because of medications that I take and whatnot. But for the most part, like there hasn't been this, I, I, I've never gone a day like being extremely upset about what happened to me. Um, in fact, I think there's more positives that came out of it than anything. And, and I think thinking of it like that really like helped me through it. But at the same time, like, I don't think everybody needs to go through this. Like <laughs> I don't want, I don't want people going through this just for positives. So. Right. Right. And so like now that you're seeing COVID, what was, what was upsetting to you? Was it the fact that, you know, you're just seeing people that like are kind of taking things for granted and not taking the fact that they could potentially, um, you know, be at a lot of risk with this virus? Was that right? Kind of- right. That it wasn't necessarily upsetting. It's just like, I just want people to remember. And it's just that, like, just want people to remember that, like, they are not invincible and like, they are not like, just because you're healthy otherwise you never know and so if you're able to wear a mask like wear that mask um you know if you're working in a hospital take your proper precautions you don't need to be a cowboy you don't need to be any sort of like you know cool looking life you know like there's no need to play superhero you're just like do what you need to do take care of the people you can take care of but at the end of the day like you know how many like it's it's even killed residents at this point right like three so far three so far so then people three so far like, that we know of that we know of right and so and 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 also like one of the things that gets to me is people saying like oh you know it killed so and so like this doctor who had no medical problems like how could this be happening no medical problems how could and you know and then i also remind people like hey remember like some disease could happen to people with no medical problems like we need to stop 
only thinking of those risk factors. And this is one of them. Um, mind you, of course, it's it, there are some risk factors, but at the same time, like think outside of the box too. So that, that's how I see it. Yeah, I think this will be a big, I think for the world at large, I think this is a wake up call that is going to leave a lot of people better off, hopefully after this, whether it's time to reflect on, you know, their potential mortality, or if it's, you know, taking the things that we used to take for granted, um, not for granted anymore. Uh, I think, you know, there, you know, as tragic as all of this is, and as sad as it is to see, I think there will still be even positives to come after all of this. And um, you have an important message right now, and you talking about this and your experience and, you know, the kind of the gracefulness that you have in dealing with all of it is inspiring for people. Thank you. What What's your mission now? Like, what are you, what are you really trying to get out there? I think above all else, um, after everything I went through, not only with transplant, but after transplant, all the struggles, my hospital shut down, I had to find a new residency, and then, like, going back to residency, and then this pandemic, and, you know, all of that. I think ultimately, ultimately what I want to show people is that no matter what, no matter how terrible your situation is, you can get through it. Um, I think especially for people who are so critically ill, um, I've, I, he I hear over and over again for transplant patients, you know, I get messages from them um, saying things like, you know, I have a transplant or I had to get a transplant or I became so critically ill that I wasn't sure if I can go back to work. Um, and, and I like to at least show people that like, Hey, I, tr I'm trying to show people that you can at least go back to a type of normal as much of a normal as possible. If not the normal that you were at before, no matter how low your low was before that. So if I can tell people that, if I can inspire people to, to know that, then, um, then that's good enough for me. Not just that, but I think taking, taking all the negatives that happen to you and try to learn things from them. That's another thing as well. So, yeah, I mean, talk about resilience, like on top of all that, your residency closed down. <laughs> That's I mean, a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, wow, like that's crazy. That's so crazy. And, you know, we like, I've been pretty public about kind of all the things I've gone through. And resilience is one of those things that you just got to, you know, keep pushing and believing in yourself. And, right. uh, you know, like it's always just one one step at a time. Yeah. And um, it's just really just having that real you know, belief that things are going to get better and things are going to work out. And if you just keep that up, you know, it's cliche, but it works, you know, it works. You just got to believe even when there's no evidence that no, things I are going to change. No, you I just got to believe. You have to. That's the only way to do it. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful mission, Aline. And, um, you know, you're incredibly inspiring. And, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people really are going to benefit from hearing your story and from, you know, continuing to hear your message. And I think you need to keep, keep spreading it. Thank you. I will try. Well, thank you so much. Is there, <laughs> where can, where can people follow you? Where can they listen or read your blog? And um, you so I have a blog. It's a change of H E dot A R T. That's the URL. 
And then my Instagram is a change of heart blog with um, underscores under each after each letter. Um, I mean, after each word, so I can give those to you. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's basically how you can get in touch with me and I'm really open to messages and all that. So anything. Thank you so much, Aline. Thank you for having me. Definitely. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We're going to be bringing you more COVID related episodes in the coming weeks and months. So stay tuned. If you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. Leave us a five-star review. Let us know what you liked about this episode. And please, please, if you would share this episode by screenshotting and tagging us at beyond underscore med or tagging me personally at drrami.do. And I will retweet or repost your Instagram stories. So Get at us. Peace out, guys.